Let's go ahead and uh, pray before we begin. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we confess to you that we tend to be self-sufficient and that we are so easily full of pride and we desperately need you. We are utterly dependent upon you, Father. We ask that your spirit and that your word would help us to understand. Lord, we ask your blessing on our time that you would bless me, be with me, be with my mouth, with my heart, and with my words. That you would help me to clearly and accurately represent your word and say it with clarity. Lord, I pray that you would be with us all, that our hearts would be teachable, that you would help us to see the clear meaning of your text, that we would understand the implications of your truth and that we would deal with those things and apply it rightly, that through an understanding of your word that we would glorify Christ. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we are in Matthew chapter 6. It's a well-known passage, and it's, it's interesting how many times in our studies, in our discussions, that this very passage gets referenced a lot. If we were, if we were to take a close and honest look at our, our daily life, I think we would see that worry, anxiety, concern, fear are far more prevalent than we realize it affects us all. I'd love to say that I don't struggle with anxiety or worries. I'd love to say that, but that wouldn't be the truth. I struggle with it daily just as everyone else in this room. Our anxious times happen far more than we'd like to admit. And if you're tempted to say that you never worry, I challenge you to just look back at the last time that you were late for work or late for an appointment and you couldn't find your keys or your wallet or your purse. We're quick to become anxious. We, we run to it. People get anxious for so many reasons. Some get anxious because of strained relationships with other people. Some get anxious because of a loss of a job or a lack of a sufficient source of income. Some get anxious because of a loss of social position. They're worried about what people think of them. Some are anxious over losing a house or a living situation. Maybe your car broke down. Maybe there's an academic failure. Maybe somebody mistreats you or humiliates you. Politics and what's going on in the society has created a lot of anxiety lately. People express their anxiety a lot about politics and about societal breakdown. Viruses have caused a lot of anxiety this year. The state of the economy, conflicts and war, one of the most common causes of anxiety with people is finances. Causes a lot of marital problems. People think that their problems will be solved if they only had more money. I just need more money. But in reality, more money creates more problems and additional anxieties. It doesn't stop your anxiety. This passage actually 
is interconnected with the previous passage on greed. And it's really two sides of the same coin. It's really vitally connected. On one hand, man is greedy for more. He wants to serve money. And on the other hand, man is anxious for what he doesn't have. Money tends to be a a very vital connecting point with a lot of our anxieties. Starting in verse 24, if you want to read along, this is verse 24. It's the verse just before our passage, and it's closing the previous section. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So lusting for more or anxiety over not having enough are both a sin issue. So what is at the heart of our anxieties? What causes mankind to be anxious? What what drives us in that direction? First, it must be said that there is a righteous and a sinful way for us to deal with most anything, isn't there? We can twist and distort anything. There's a righteous anger and there's a sinful anger, right? Similarly, we can experience a form of anxiety that is God-focused or gospel-focused. The glory of God is at heart. After all, Paul confesses that he is anxious for the churches that he is serving. He's anxious for their success in pursuing Christ and growing in the truth and the knowledge of Christ and being established. But a vast majority of our anxiety is not focused in an upper direction. It's focused inward. We can be even anxious about somebody else, and it's very man-centered or it's self-centered. So our, our anxieties are most often placed in a very wrong direction. In the foundation of our anxiety, what, what is kind of the catalyst is we lack control. We want control over it. And the, the fear of it being out of our hands and the fear of not knowing the future... And there are a lot of fears in the heart of man. Anxieties created by a sin-cursed world and built upon man's own weakness, his lack of faith, or sin, because he is not in control of his situations and not in control of his destinies. The world breeds it. It fosters fear. It promotes worries all over the place. So let's read together our passage in Matthew chapter 6. Starting at verse 25, He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, uh, span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus responds to our anxiety in this passage, and he gives us a very direct command. Very clear, very direct. It's an imperative. Verse 25, do not be anxious. Verse 28, why are you anxious? Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious. His use of the verbs in this passage address the issue from various angles. It's very interesting. There's little variances to the use of the verb. He says, why are you being anxious? Because it doesn't make sense. Then he says, if you're currently anxious, stop it. Then he says, don't be anxious anymore going forward. He takes it from every angle. So a majority of our anxieties are sin issues, and we can't talk our way around it or avoid it. We, we, can't, we can't avoid the reality. But what is beautiful about this passage is it's not just some slap on the hand for being anxious. Stop it. Okay? This passage is full of the hope and the grace of God to us who believe. It's full of it. For the unbeliever, there's no hope, right? Is there? Apart from Christ, there's only fear and despair. Anxiety is well-placed. But for the child of God, there's absolutely no reason to fear. There's only hope, peace, and joy. So this passage reminds us of the glory and the grace of God. And it helps us to think rightly and to trust by faith. It helps us to do that. Jesus' words demand that we look that we consider, that we reason with the truth. Most of all that's in this passage, we've heard from time to time, but we have this tendency to forget, and we fail to uh, allow this truth to prevail in our life every day. So Jesus' words demand that we look and we listen. We need to remember. We need to constantly remember. We We need a reminder all the time. So with that goal in mind, this morning we're going to be reminded of three things. Number one is our relationship to God. Number two is the sovereignty of God. And number three is the kingdom of God. First, we need to remember our relationship to God. What is your relationship to God? What is it? Verse 26, your heavenly Father. Verse 32, your heavenly Father. Do you ever stop and ponder what it means that God is our heavenly Father? That we've been made to literally be a child of God? In every respect, we are a child of God. We belong to Him. You have children, most of you. 
do you love your children? Do you care about your children? You take care of their needs. They have rights over your household, right? To treat it as their own. You care for them throughout life. And when you're gone, you give everything to them. You want to bless them. They bear your name. They bear your image. And you love them. You care for them. Jesus asked this in the very next chapter. He says, which of you, if his sons ask for bread, you give him a stone? Or which one of you, if your child asks you for fish, you give him a serpent? He's asking an absurd question, right? How many, how many men would do that? It's an, it's, an obvious, it's an obvious answer to his question. Of course no one does that. Even a bad father provides for his children. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You know the little game we like to play. I love you. I love you more. You ever done that? Okay. The Father will always get the last word. God the Father will always surpass everyone in terms of love. Our love for even our children grossly is pale compared to the love of God the Father. He loves us with a perfect love, gives to us according to His perfect will, and His dealings with us are best to the fullest extent of the meaning of best. He gives to us. He loves us with a perfect love. No matter what your circumstances, God's love towards you is manifest even through whatever suffering or difficulty or trial or pain or anxiety faces us, no matter what the circumstances. The, the Father's care and provision are demonstrated right in front of us every day. He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at them. Think about it, he says. Consider it closely. Look at the birds. They're right in front of you. Galilee is a crossroads of bird migration between Europe and Africa. So there are times when there's just massive amounts of birds. And Jesus says, look around you. He says to the crowd, look at the birds. Look at them. They're all around you. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How many of you have ever observed a bird building a barn in the tree. Have you seen that happen? How many of you have seen a bird till the ground, sow seed, harvest a crop, and then fill his barn full of grain and good things? Have you seen him do that? No. Bird's up there in the tree saying, I'll tear down my nests and I'll build, builder, I'll build bigger nests and I'll fill it with seeds and worms and I'll, I'll eat, drink, and be merry. No, birds don't do that, do they? They don't make storehouses. It's an absurd picture, isn't it? Because they don't do that. But we see the example in front of us every day, and we don't even think about it. We don't even reason with it. The birds do instinctively do what we refuse to do. Working with what God provides and completely trusting Him. And God certainly cares for birds. He cares for his entire creation. 
The entire creation would not exist unless he sustained it. God hasn't abandoned birds. He hasn't abandoned them. He provides an abundance of resources, and he's given them the instinct to get what they need. And they and their offspring are provided for graciously by God every day. It's interesting in Luke 12, he uses the word for raven instead of the word for bird. Do you know a raven was an unclean and detestable animal to the Jews? A raven was, was unclean. Jesus says that God cares for even the needs of the unclean and detestable ravens. Remember Jesus' words in the previous chapter, chapter 5. He says that the Father makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's not that sun is good and rain is bad and he does both. No, it's saying that the sun, which is good and necessary for survival, and the rains, which are good and necessary for survival, God has graciously given those to the good and the wicked on this earth. It's God's common grace. So in his mercy and his care, God provides for all things in this world. These birds are such insignificant creatures. Yet it says, your heavenly Father feeds them and cares for them. You've been created in the image of God. Even more than being created in the image of God, you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is now your Father. You are bound to Christ, bound to the Father in Christ. And Jesus says, are you not more valuable than they are? Don't, don't you have more value than a bird? And yet God is faithful to them. Do you think he's faithful to the bird and not to you? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter what your circumstances, your difficulties. God loves you more. He loves you more. He cares. These insignificant little birds instinctively trust God for their needs, yet we, who are so much more significant in the eyes of God, we fail to trust Him. We fail at doing that. And this isn't to say that you should go around, you know, let go and let God and just sit back and wait for God to deliver the goods to your house. That's not what we're talking about. There's an expectation for us as well, for our needs, that we work to provide Birds don't sit on the tree branch and they sit there with their mouth open waiting for God to drop it in. They tirelessly search for food. They fly all over the place. They pick it up. They gather it and they eat it. There's a very direct command given in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. So we're not talking about sitting back and just waiting for God to give you something, but we are talking about trusting in God's provision. We're not to be anxious because God knows our difficulties and our needs and will always lovingly supply what is the very best for us. We are to pray dependently and trust Him completely, whatever the circumstances and whatever the outcome happens to be. And Jesus goes on, he says, why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. 
how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. When you have opportunity, just look up on the internet sometime, wildflowers blooming in Galilee. They're beautiful. They're, they're, they're stunningly beautiful. Can you just picture the people in that field sitting in the midst of all of this, and he says, look around you. Look at what you're sitting in. Look at how God has dressed the flowers, this field full of flowers. We're so disconnected from this audience in terms of the real issue of food, drink, and clothing. We really are. Food and clothing were real needs and very important and difficult to acquire. So the people sitting there that day, they generally work all day, every day, just to try to have enough food to survive. And sometimes weather conditions or invading armies, they, they lost everything they worked for and they starved. If you, didn't, if you couldn't produce food that day, then you didn't eat. Water was hard to come by in the hot, dry season. You ran out. Clothing was of high value. You were blessed to have a set of clothes. You had a set of clothes, you preserved it, you protected it, you mended it, and you cared for that clothing because it was of high cost and it was of high value and it was a great need. Folks even passed down their clothing, believe it or not, to their children as an inheritance because it was valuable and it was important. It was a big deal. In fact, the law, the Old Testament law, protected the average and the poor because even their cloak was used to cover them when they slept. It says in Leviticus 22, if ever you, uh, you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the only covering and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? You depended on your clothes even to keep warm when you were sleeping. You slept in your clothes. These people depended upon their clothes and they were blessed to have them. Only the very wealthy the very wealthy could afford to have more than one set of clothes, and only the very wealthy could have brilliant colors, red or orange or purple or whatever. Only they could afford the expensive dyes to color their clothing. We're so disconnected from these circumstances. We worry about food, but it's because we're worried about which kind of food do we want or where are we going to go to get the food that we want. That's our concern. We worry about clothes, but we're more worried about which set of clothes do I want to wear, or are they stylish enough? Are they appealing? Our basic needs tend to be contrived needs when we call, our, call it our basic needs. Their needs were very real, and they faced a struggle to survive every day. It was a reality. And Jesus, what he's doing here as he's starting from the outside, bringing it all the way down, bringing the things of life all the way down to the smallest, the basic necessities, and says, do not be anxious even for the basic needs of life. The Father cares for you. He doesn't mean just food and drink and clothing. He means everything. 
He says, look at what you're sitting in. God clothed this field in more beautiful attire than even Solomon wore. Solomon's wealth was renowned. No one ever possessed a comparable wealth. What Solomon wore, though, was not worthy to be compared with the beauty of how God dressed this field of flowers. You take a piece of clothing, take a garment, put it under a microscope. Then take a beautiful flower and put it under a microscope. I'm telling you, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. That piece of cloth, that garment, cannot even compare to the beauty, the intricacy, the design, the magnificence of what God has created. You, you, there's no comparison. The fields were never anxious about clothing. The fields never worked for it even. Why not let God take care of our needs as well and trust Him for it? Again, this doesn't mean that we do nothing. It means that as we work hard, we trust God without getting anxious, without getting upset. Jesus goes further. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This grass is a very insignificant thing, just like the bird. It's insignificant. In fact, all these flowers and the grass would all dry up. They were all gathered and they were burned. Do you think God loves the grass more than you? Jesus uses what is around his audience to provide a very stinging rebuke, but also hope. Birds and grass don't fret. They simply trust God for provision. Man, on the other hand, he tends to trust in himself and his wealth and what is earthly. And when the dependence on what is earthly fails, he's full of anxiety. And we say God loves us, but do we act like God loves us? Do we think like that? Do we feel that way? We have little faith, he says. It's not that we have to really believe. It's we're not believing who God says He is. We need to be constantly reminded of the relationship that we have with God. It's a, it's a perfect relationship. He is our Heavenly Father, and He loves us. He will always love us more. And second, we need to remember the sovereignty of God. Closely connected. I love this. Jesus says in verse 27... Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? We're created by God in the way that God wanted us to be, and we exist as long as it pleases him and fits into his perfect will. The word translated span is actually the word for a cubit. I think even some translations use the word cubit. A cubit represented the distance from the elbow to the fingertips. It was about 18 inches. It was just a measurement, a way of measuring things. Jesus was saying that getting anxious will not change the length of your life. You can't even add a small measurement to the length of your life. 
Worry is not going to change a thing. You can't force God's hand. You don't possess the authority to change anything. You can't add one second to your life. God has your days numbered. And you will not live one moment longer or shorter than he has determined for you. Job had to learn this lesson, and he says, Man's days are determined, and the number of his months are with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You can't change it. You can't change. You might say, oh, well, my circumstances are so bad, I'm going to perish. No, you won't. Not unless God has determined that. You're not going to perish. And it is only determined by His perfect character and His perfect will and by His relationship to you as a perfect Father. What is more, will you, you will face no more and no less in terms of difficult circumstances than what God determines. And no one has the power to hold back His hand and to prevent it from happening. You can't stop it. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this in a very hard way. And when he finally came to the right conclusion, he said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can do that. He further says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wouldn't we be better off pleading our case to a loving heavenly Father in prayer, and then trusting Him for His perfect and sovereign will. You can't force God's hand. And you certainly can't uh, change things on this earth, especially how long you live. God has determined that. He is the solid rock we stand on. That God is our Father and that his love toward us is unquestionable? You connect that with the fact that he has all power and authority over his creation, that he is completely sovereign over all things, and you now have immeasurable peace. He not only loves you, he has all authority and all power. We need to remember that God's our Father. We need to remember that God is sovereign And the third thing we need to remember is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We so easily become obsessed with this world. There's so much in this world that entices our flesh and makes this world our priority and our focus. Responsibilities draw our hearts away. Even even responsibilities that are connected with our desire to glorify God, those tasks can sometimes They have this tendency to consume our focus and our hearts. We fixate on this life and on this body. And Jesus says, isn't life more than these things? 
even the basic necessities. Isn't life more than this? And he says, a Gentile, um, he says, uh, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what he says in the passage. Isn't that what the Gentiles do? Gentile was a way of describing anyone who was outside the favor of God, outside the people of God. A Gentile was a pagan, an unbeliever, okay? Jesus is saying, you get all anxious about this life and about your body. Um, isn't that what the pagans do? They have good reason to do that. An unbeliever has a good reason to do that, don't they? There's no hope. There's no hope. But you have a heavenly father. And doesn't he know that you need these things? Doesn't he know that? Doesn't he know your circumstances? Shouldn't you be asking him and trusting him? There's something higher than these things that we deal with in this world, something more important that you should be pursuing and concerned about. You're a child of the king. You're redeemed. You belong to God. And thus, you should be living for him and focused ahead. The glories of heaven are so much weightier than these things. We don't often think that way when we're in the midst of it. But since we are children, why are we more not concerned about that world instead of this one? Why is it that we seek these things here on earth instead of his kingdom and his righteousness? The kingdom of God is not of this world. It's eternal and it's perfect. It is superior. Redemption, life, and all things glorious and good are part of that kingdom. All other kingdoms, all other things will fail, will corrupt, will be destroyed. They'll be gone. Imagine being in that crowd when Jesus spoke these things. Imagine him standing in front of you. Just picture that for a minute. The Son of God is standing before you. Do you realize that? When Jesus stood before these people on that particular day, the full embodiment of the kingdom of God was present. The King of Kings was there. He's standing right before them. And he says, seek first the kingdom, not your own. Seek his kingdom. Make his kingdom the object of supreme choice and pursuit. Seek it first. Seek it above all things and even through all things, even the hard things. Seek his righteousness, which is simply the character of a kingdom citizen being made manifest. Acting like we are his children. We're his children, we should be acting like his children. Trusting him, obeying him, as Christ did, our supreme example. Completely trusting the will of the Father. Completely dependent upon the Father for all things. Is not life more than this life and this body, is what he says in the passage. Isn't it more than that? And how much more has he provided through Christ? Things eternal, things beyond measure, things beyond our comprehension, guys. What we've been given in Christ. Ephesians 4.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, or I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
You understand that God did not act stingy towards us. He didn't take an eyedropper and he dipped into his blessing and he kind of dropped a drop or two on top of us. It literally means he poured it on us. He poured it, lavished it, overabundantly has given it to us. Every possible blessing in heaven has been given to us. Is not life far more than this life in this body? Isn't it far more? Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, great verse. You want a memory verse? Here's a good one for you. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds, it means to think this way, or to have this inner disposition. It's just like your compass. It always points north. You look at your compass, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, that compass always points north. Our hearts and our minds, our life, everything, should be pointed toward the kingdom of heaven. should be aimed at that. We are in Christ. We have died with him, according to this verse. We've been raised with him. We are positioned with him at the right hand of the Father. And when he appears, we're going to appear with him in glory. Kind of makes all our earthly difficulties very small and the joys of seeking his kingdom magnificent and a delight. So we need constant reminders, don't we? Particularly in light of this world that we live in, this world that does not know God and does not trust God. We, we are constantly bombarded in our media, in our music, in our culture, with this mindset that craves the acquisition of possessions. And they live in this deep anxiety of either trying to get them or keep them or protect them, preserve them, things of this world. Because there's nothing else. There's nothing else in their mind. So when something goes wrong... The world's attitude is that it was completely by chance and that it's somehow totally unfair. Or maybe those things have to be someone's fault. Just pick someone and blame them and be angry at them. It's their fault. I'm telling you, mankind deserves no good thing. Nothing. But God has lavished on us all His grace and His loving favor. And if we are the Father's children, then we should be trusting His hand. We should be doing that. And if we are the Father's children, then we also want to glorify Him by the way that we trust Him. Don't we? Don't we want to glorify Him by trusting Him? When you're anxious over even the basic needs of life, what do you communicate about God? Maybe God doesn't know what's happening. He's not omniscient. We know that's not true. Maybe God's totally incapable of providing for your needs. He just he knows about it. He just can't do anything about it. He's not omnipotent. 
Well, you know, that's not true. Maybe God simply doesn't care. God must not love us. Well, we know that's not true. We all succumb to anxiety. I succumb to anxieties. As I'm going through this, I was not only gripped with conviction, but I was also freed. As I started turning my heart away from those things that make me anxious and start to realize the love of God and the way we can trust Him. We need to be continually reminded of God's love. We need to continually be reminded of God's power and His sovereignty, even over our difficult circumstances. And we need to be looking forward in all things, living for the kingdom that He has already made us citizens of. That's our destiny. Before we conclude, you can't cover this passage in Matthew without reflecting on Paul's words in Philippians 4. I'm going to start at the end of verse 5. Another good memory verse. Philippians 4, starting at verse, the end of verse 5, the original, the original text did not have chapters and verse divisions. Those were placed later, and I really believe that the end of verse 5 really belongs with verse 6 going into verse 7. And it says this, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. He's here. He's with you. He will never forsake you. He's at hand. Do not be anxious. Ever. For anything. But petition God in prayer. But do it with thanksgiving. How do you pray with thanksgiving, Paul? How do you... Paul, you don't understand my circumstances. How difficult they are. How do you pray anything about this with thanksgiving? How about, Father, thank you that I am your child and that you love me with a perfect love even in this. Father, thank you that you hear me and you care for my needs. Father, thank you that you are sovereign even over this situation and that your will for me is unquestionably good no matter what I understand. Father, thank you that I am your child destined for great glory. Father, help me to set my heart on that future kingdom and on your righteousness. Father, thank you for this experience and that you will use it to set my heart on things above. And what, what is the result? What is the result of praying like that? It says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can't be knocked off our pins. When, when we remember who our Father is, and we remember His power and authority, and we remember what He has made us destined for, what He has fixed for us eternally, binding us to Him, these things cannot tear us down. They can't knock us down. So, Father, I ask that you would help us to remember how glorious is your love for us. 
how much you care. We are weak in our understanding. We don't see that you are perfect in your will. Father, help us to trust your power, your wisdom, your sovereignty in all things. And help us to delight in what you have made us to be and to set all things in life, even the hard things, in the direction of your glory and your kingdom, that you would be honored and glorified for what you have done. You deserve for us to rejoice in you, even in those things that we don't understand. And we praise you and thank you for your love and your goodness towards us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.